Hi, this is Lisa Newman for the Yiddish Book Center. I'm here today with Aaron Lansky in our studio at the Yiddish Book Center, and we have Alex Isley, creative director of Alexander Isley, Inc., a design studio located in Bridgefield, Connecticut. Alex and his team just completed the design of the Yiddish Book Center's new visual identity campaign, and I wanted to visit with Alex and Aaron to talk about what went into the process of creating the new look. Welcome, Aaron and Alex. Happy to be here. And me too. Great. I could begin with the obvious question, why the goat? But before I ask that question, I wondered if you'd both share a bit about the process of considering and designing the center's new logo. Aaron, maybe you can start with the conversation and let us know what you were looking to convey with a new visual identity. Okay, well that's an easy part. We've had all kind of logos over the last uh, <clears throat> 32 years. Uh, most have been variations on books in one form or another. But we decided with all the new activity going on here, it was time for a new look as well. And that's when you, Lisa, brought us to Alex. So Alex, you want to take, it, take the story from there, from the time when you got this panicked phone call, we need a new logo, and what do we do? And Alex, sure. um, I'd love it if you could sort of talk to that. You have a great quote that's what you do, which is, we help companies and organizations communicate with intelligence, wit, surprise, and delight. <laughs> and there you have it, end quote. So that's, that's the introduction. Statement. Well, I think, yes, that's, that's what I try to do. I think sometimes we as designers are called in to create an identity or an ad or a campaign that's not really based in truth or emotion. They're looking for you just to sort of decorate something or tart it up and kind of trick people into liking it. And I think that's when you use your powers for evil instead of good. And <laughs> I prefer instead to work with uh, organizations who really have a mission and a passion, and if they're doing their job well, they're focusing their efforts on their mission and their passion, and sometimes what happens is the way they communicate to the outside world doesn't necessarily get overlooked, but it may not be their strength. So what I try to do is work to help ch channel what is good and important to people in the outside world who may not be as familiar with the organization, and that's kind of what happened here, where I got the panic call saying we want to do a new identity for the Yiddish Book Center and we don't want to use books. And that kind of poses a problem right away because the first image that you would have that should immediately pirouette to mind is one that we don't want to use. So, I know. Well, Alex, the, re the reason we didn't want to use books is we figured it was already in our name, so it was a little bit redundant having Yiddish Book Center in a picture of books. We, we, could, we could get more mileage than that is what we figured. Absolutely. And I also think that as your mission has and continues to expand past books, books are always going to be central for it, to, to it, but there, there are issues that you address that um, might be easier to convey if you don't have a picture of a book there. Yes, yeah, so I remember this wonderful meeting we had upstairs in the library when we first started uh, you know, talking with you about different possibilities. I should also just point out that you were already not a stranger to us because you redesigned Pockentrager for us this year. Right. That's so, true, so I had received an introduction to what you're about. You did, and we, were, we knew how to work with you as well. So we sat down at that table, and the really easy part was eliminating all the bad ideas. Uh, and, you know, the Jewish world does not uh, abound in iconography. Uh, in fact, you know, we thought, well, a menorah was kind of the oldest Jewish symbol, but that was too religious feeling. And we thought maybe a tree... But that was a little bit overused as well, but kind of a, every Jewish organization that doesn't have a Jewish star seems to have a tree, and we didn't want to do that. 
And then we thought about the Jewish star, and we realized that that wasn't quite it either. Way, way, way too commonplace. And not only that, I ended up looking it up. It hadn't even been a commonly used Jewish symbol until the 17th century, so way too recent for our taste. We wanted something that had, you know, a real uh, historical resonance as well. And that, Alex, is I think when we started talking and thought, what about an animal? And uh, that, that became the challenge then, was to try to narrow that down. I think that was one of the questions was, is there some type of, of symbol or identifiable thing that's out there that is not overused or cliched that still in some capacity could resonate with our audience or even if people didn't know what it was, it could spark a discussion. And right, and so I think what I said, there were um, there really two sort of ubiquitous Jewish animal images, at least, you know, kind of post-biblical. One is the golden apava or the golden peacock, and the second is the, the chlorweist ziegler or the little white goat. The peacock was kind of easy to rule out. NBC got there first, and uh, the Yiddish Theater of Israel uses it, and the Manga Prize uses it. The goat, though, that was way more intriguing, because I couldn't think of anyone that exactly used it. But as we sat around thinking, we realized quite how ubiquitous this is. Um, obviously, you know, Chagall's paintings always have goats flying through the air. And, boy, I could think of all kinds of Yiddish stories from Mendela to Isaac Besheva, singer that, needed goat, that used goats. But we also realized that we needed to do a little bit of uh, research on this to figure out, you know, does this really have quite the historical resonance that we're uh, looking for? And as soon as you mentioned the goat, it just seemed like a home run to me, especially when you started explaining all the different historical precedent there was and all the meaning that was there. It just seemed a, a not initially... Um, something that we, one would initially think of, but once you understood it, it has resonance, and I think that's the goal of an identity. It kind of needs to capture um, people's spirit and imagination. Right. Well, I, I, sh I should add that I, I didn't know all of the uh, you know, complexity or precedent of the GOAT till I did a little bit of research. So I, after we met that day, I went back to my office, and I uh, went to that very uh, authoritative Jewish research source, Google, and I typed in <laughs> Jewish and GOAT, and I kind of got nothing. And then I said, hmm, what if I type in the Yiddish word for goat, which is uh, tzig or tzigala? And I type it in, and where does Google bring me? Back to the Yiddish Book Center's own website. And one of our uh, online books was a book called uh, Motiven von Tzig und Tzigala in Jewish history, you know, motifs of goat and kids in, in Jewish history. So I, I took the book, printed it out. And then I flew off to California. On the way back on the airplane, I took out this big sheaf of pages of this book, and I uh, read it the entire way home. And boy, did I learn more about Jews and goats than I ever expected to, to know. Uh, most of our listeners will know there's, there's a very famous uh, song that's sung every year at the Passover Seder, or every year since 1564, I, I now know. It's a song in the, written in Aramaic called Chad Gadjo, or The Little Goat. Uh, you know, most major Jewish artists, not just Chagall, but Lissitzky and many, many others played with goat motifs. Uh, in Jewish songs, there were goats everywhere. There's the, oh, the famous lullaby that many people know, Rojan Kismet Mandolin, Raisins and Almonds, that says, Under the baby's crib, there's sleeping a little white goat. I, I got to tell you, Alex, it wasn't till uh, I read on in the book that I realized that that wasn't as fanciful as I thought it was. Because it turns out that part of the ubiquity of images of 
goats in Jewish lore was because the ubiquity of the ubiquity of goats, period, in Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Most Jews were too poor to own cows, and they also didn't have land. They were not allowed to own land. So they didn't have enough land to pasture cows. So instead, they kept goats in the yard, and apparently on winter nights, they would bring the goats into the house. And so the idea of a little goat lying under a baby's crib was not as, even remotely as far-fetched as uh, we thought it might have been originally. Uh, almost every single Yiddish writer wrote about goats. Mendel, Peret, Shalom Aleichem, Kajam Oladovsky, Sutzkever, Chaim Grada, they all have goats in the stories. You know, I think they saw goats as small and smart and touching and maybe a little bit stubborn, and they somehow identified with that. So we said, okay, goat it is, it's ubiquitous enough, it's kind of emblematic, just as we found Yiddish books that were hiding in plain sight. Here's the goat that's been hiding in plain sight, this wonderful, iconic Jewish image that hadn't been used. But the only problem at that point was, we didn't need just any goat. I mean, this wasn't the petting zoo. We needed a Jewish goat, and that, Alex, is when we turn back to you. Well, once we all decided that we liked the idea of the goat, which is a big hurdle, I've always believed that if you can describe an idea or a logo to someone over the telephone, it's better than showing them something because they're responding to an idea. And we had a really solid one there. And then the next part of the, of the equation is what what it looks like. And we cast a pretty wide net and looked at existing illustrations of goat for inspiration. We looked at contemporary artists, historical artists, and after a worldwide search, we actually found an illustrator whose work we all liked, who lives in Australia, and who, um, through a series of rounds, was able to craft what we considered the perfect little goat. I think as people listen to us, they can probably see the uh, image of the goat on the screen. Is that right, Lisa? We I was going to say, if you haven't seen our goat already, please <laughs> take a look at it. It's on the website, YiddishBookCenter.org. But of course, a goat doesn't make a logo, Alex. So what else did we need? Well, we needed to find a way that the goat lives within lettering and the words that say Yiddish Book Center and perhaps some Yiddish letters as well. And we tried a lot of different permutations in order to find a, a balance that works well. A good logo needs to work in black and white, multiple colors, small on a letterhead, large on a web page, maybe on a sign. So you need to have something that works in a lot of different um, mediums. So we played around with that, looked at letter forms, were inspired by a book that Aaron found that uh, Elisitsky had created some time ago that had some really unique styles of lettering that we were influenced by. And it really, yeah, that element by itself is subjective. And then when you get all of them together, you need to really make sure that you craft something that can hold together and have a consistent spirit so it doesn't look like three random little right, things right. that are plopped together. Although i got to say, when we saw those letters, it was in the, the book Chagadjo by Lasitsky, and when we saw those letters, we just knew that was it. It's, it's really tricky finding the right Yiddish typography because the old typography usually looks more like Torah text or something like that, and the new and kind of the more you know creative type type today, Hebrew type today, tends to be more Israeli and has that resonance to it. And something that was kind of deeply uh, both avant-garde but deeply Jewish in an East European sense was a tricky thing to find until we went to Lasitsky. And those letters were perfect, but as I recall, Alex, there was one problem. We only had uh, four of the letters that we needed and we were missing a shin on Yiddish, as I recall. That's correct. So we had to do a little <laughs> typographic archaeology reconstruction and create a missing shin from elements that existed, but with a little trial and error and experimentation, we got something that works pretty 
well, we think. I think we did Lasitsky proud. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very, this is the type of assignment that keeps me waking up and coming into work in the morning where <laughs> you really get to collaborate with people you admire, you learn something new. It really is an exchange of ideas, not just me as a designer going in the back room and conjuring up something from the ether, but instead it's an idea that's based on history and, an, um, and a story. And the result I'm pleased with because we work together well on it. It's something that I think is beautiful. It has meaning. It's an idea that I never would have come up with by myself in a million years, and yet I get the credit for it. So it kind of is a win-win. <laughs> Well, Alex, we are really <laughs> grateful to you, so thanks very much. It's been great. Thanks for visiting with us today, and thank you for the logo, which we love. So, again, if you haven't seen it, check it out on our website, and don't forget to uh, enter to win the Name the Goat contest. Who knows <laughs> what its name will be? Um, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org backslash audio. Our producer is Emma Morgenstern. I'm Lisa Newman. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon.